from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people. Credit Union ideas. When consumers drive 70% of economic activity as they do in the U.S., any significant disruption to people's lives will have a corresponding impact on the economy. That is certainly the case with the coronavirus outbreak, which has created rapid, widespread, and severe economic disruption. I'm Bill Merrick, Deputy Editor for CUNA News. In this episode of the CUNA News Podcast, three CUNA economists examine the extent of the disruption and provide an updated forecast for the economy. They are Samira Salem, Senior Policy Analyst, Jordan Van Rin, Senior Economist, and Mike Shank, Chief Economist and Deputy Chief Advocacy Officer. Multiple economists say the U.S. is already in recession. What do you think? As a result of the COVID-19, the economy has been really dynamic. There's really a lot of uncertainty that's been introduced into the economy. But we do believe that the economy has entered into a recession. It may not meet the official definition of a recession, but there has been rapid, widespread, and and severe economic disruption, so much so that a growing number of economists, as you're saying, are are calling this a recession. And you all met this week to revise your forecast for the U.S. economy. What did you consider in this forecast? We're taking a look at both the supply-side shocks and the demand-side shocks. It's unusual to see these both happening at the same time. Ultimately, what we're seeing is a significant weakening of consumer and business confidence and demand and a disruption to global and U.S. supply chains. Because of the social distancing, including the increasing number of shelter-in-place, stay-home, stay-safe orders, well, these are absolutely critical to getting the public health crisis under control. They are certainly putting the brakes on the economic activity, and this is rippling through the entire economy. When 70% of economic activity is driven by consumers, and it has been the consistent bright spot in the U.S. economy, it's evident that there is going to be a substantial slowing of growth. Add to that the stock market volatility that we've been seeing, um, which brought the end of the longest bull market in U.S. history, the oil price war between the Saudis um, and the Russians for market share. And so we do expect to see a significant slowdown in economic growth. So, you know, with the slowdown in economic activity, business closures, event cancellations, we now expect unemployment rates to peak at around 6.5% in the second quarter and eventually settle to 6 in 2020. Contrast that to our previous forecast, which had unemployment at 3.5% for 2020. And so there is a significant increase there as well. And I think the other thing that we talked about in terms of the economic outlook is that because of declining consumer and business demand, the decline in oil prices, we expect the inflation in the economy will experience deep deflation for the year of around a negative 0.63%. So one thing to consider, though, is that we are going into this economic slowdown from a solid economic position 
for the past couple of years, we've had healthy economic growth, strong labor market, and controlled inflation. So this all should help the U.S. weather this storm better than if the economy had been in a weaker state. In terms of the path, we expect that, for the most part, the effects of COVID-19 crisis will be concentrated in the second quarter of 2020. We expect this to be relatively short-lived. We also expect that the economy will begin to recover in the second half of the year and um, that the recovery is going to continue through at least 2021. We considered the fiscal stimulus that's still taking shape and are expecting that that should help alleviate some of the effects of the crisis and, and really help speed up the recovery. But if the virus doesn't recede by the end of the second quarter, or if it returns later in the year, then we would likely see a longer recession and, and slower recovery. What do you think this means for credit union growth and asset quality and other measures? Yeah, hey, Bill, this is Jordan. I can jump in on that one. Credit unions have been in pretty good shape. You know, there's been really fast membership growth recently of over 3 and 4%, really fast loan growth. We had already seen growth kind of starting to dwindle a bit, especially auto loan growth. So we were kind of already slowing down. But the fast growth did put credit unions in a pretty strong position. So you see, for example, capital adequacy overall is over 11%. But nonetheless, you know, as Samira said, because of the economic ramifications of this, we do expect to see pretty significant effects on credit unions. Loan growth is expected to drop to 3.5%, so growth rate of 3.5% this year compared to 6.5% last year. That's a decline in the growth rate of about 86%. We expect a similar trend for memberships as well, growing maybe 1.5% this year, down from 3.6% last year. That's about a 140% decrease in membership growth. Part of that is that, you know, we already saw auto loan growth uh, dropping pretty significantly. That makes up about a third of credit union loan portfolios and about 40% of the growth in the past uh, few years. So with that going down, uh, you know, a lot of the membership growth has been through indirect memberships. We expect that people just aren't going to be really, you know, out purchasing cars or getting loans for cars. So that's going to drop off quite a bit as is consumer and business lending. The one area that might buttress credit unions a bit is mortgage lending. You know, with the Federal Reserve reducing interest rates basically to zero, average mortgage rates have also fallen dramatically. So we expect there to be some mortgage uh, lending, particularly refinancing. The first mortgage is a little bit more uncertain. It's, it's somewhat unlikely, especially with the significant lockdown, that a lot of people are going to be going out purchasing new homes. But certainly, there could be activity uh, in refinancing in particular. One other area we think credit unions should be aware of that we expect to see some pretty dramatic effects is in deposit growth as well, which we expect is going to increase substantially this year. Uh, we had deposit growth pretty strong last year, about 8.1%. We expect it to increase to 12% this year. This is a common trend during recessions. People stop borrowing and they put away you know, money that they're able to save. And in addition to that, as Samira said, if we get some of this fiscal stimulus and credit union members start getting some of these stimulus checks, 
we expect a lot of them just to hold on to that, especially folks that maybe are able to keep their jobs and because of the uncertainty, want to just save that money instead of going out and spending it right away. So we expect pretty strong deposit growth, particularly in the second quarter when those checks are likely to arrive. And that should increase liquidity and drop the loan to share ratio at credit unions. But of course, at the same time, credit unions are going to have a harder time lending out that money as consumer demand falls. How will all this affect credit unions' capital levels? We do expect the drop in uh, loan demand and loan growth to reduce capital levels overall, as well you know, as, as asset growth increases significantly along with uh, savings and deposit growth. That's going to reduce the overall capital adequacy ratios. Our current forecast has a dropping um, from about 11.4% as it is now to about 10.7% at the end of the year. So it should stay relatively strong, but definitely fall a bit. What can credit unions do now to mitigate the financial impact of COVID-19? So as Samir was saying, at least according to the current forecast, we do expect and hope that this is relatively short-lived. So if that's the case, you know, by May, June or so, we should hopefully start having a bit of a return to economic activity. In that case, it really is a relatively short-lived recession. A lot of credit unions, I think, probably remember the most recent recession, which was the financial crisis, which was both deep but also lasted a pretty long period of time and took a long time for folks to recover. This one, we hope that it's much more short-lived, which means that the economy should hopefully recover relatively quickly, especially if there is that really strong fiscal stimulus. So in that case, you know, if credit unions are able to hang in there through the worst of it a few months or so, then we hope that most credit unions should do okay. As Mike Shank, our chief economist, also mentioned in an article recently, credit unions have developed this really strong capital. And, you know, now is as good a time as any to really use that capital. Smaller credit unions as well have even higher capital levels of about 14% on average, about 98, 99% of credit unions are above the 7% threshold. So, you know, I definitely recommend using that capital as much as possible over the next few months and try and kind of weather the storm. Will these financial challenges affect different populations differently? Well, we know that there are going to be more economically vulnerable groups. Individuals from rural areas, for example, and people of color are vulnerable because they already face significant health disparities. Low-income workers, especially those without paid vacation, those that are that are dependent on sort of hourly wages, or tip-dependent workers, as well as gig workers or independent workers. Think about older adults as well, and also those that are working in the affected industries. A lot of the affected industries, at least initially, are service sector industries, and these include leisure and hospitality, restaurants, bakeries. Port workers, we know, uh, have also been affected, and obviously those that are working for small businesses. One other group is also the transport-related sectors. So there's quite a broad range of groups that are being um, certainly impacted by COVID-19, and 
this is just sort of the initial set of groups. And like I said, there's uh, a ripple effect that is happening throughout the economy. So we need to kind of uh, remain vigilant in terms of what other groups might also be vulnerable um, as we go forward. I was just going to add, Mary's absolutely right. The individual groups that she mentioned are at extreme risk. There's no question about it. But I just want to underline one of the themes that we've been talking about now for many years, and that is that even though the economy is in generally good shape or was in generally good shape heading into this, two-thirds to 75% of people interviewed typically say they live paycheck to paycheck, and a large percentage, roughly 40%, can't come up with $400 for an emergency expense. So it's especially concerning for those groups that Samira mentioned, but I think in general, the average U.S. consumer is in better shape today than three or four or five years ago, but exposed, and that could be a really big problem going forward, even if we're right, and it's a short-lived but deep contraction. Of course, we have credit unions that specialize, that focus, field of membership-wise, on many of these distinct groups. So, for example, we have credit unions that serve hotels. We have credit unions that serve, you know, the leisure industry generally, airlines, you know, on and on and on. And those focuses from a field of membership perspective sort of concentrate that level of concern. Are there any lessons that the U.S. can learn from other countries about how to respond to the economic challenges related to the coronavirus? From an economic perspective, you know, I think it's actually too early to tell um, how the different fiscal responses by different countries are going to affect their economies, partly because it is still so early and many of those policies haven't been implemented and we haven't been able to see the effects. But we can learn quite a bit, I think, from previous recessions. So, for example, during the financial crisis, 2007-2009, although it was, of course, different than the current crisis, there were some things we learned that uh, I think hopefully Congress is taking into account uh, as well as the Federal Reserve, such as, for example, getting money into people's hands as quickly as possible and as much as possible. So you see now that um, Congress is looking at giving checks directly to people, significant amounts, and we're talking about potentially $2 trillion stimulus, which I, I believe is more than any of the, the stimuluses during the financial crisis. The Federal Reserve also this time has immediately lowered interest rates all the way to zero and begun doing significant quantitative easing as well, so purchasing long-term uh, treasuries and mortgages, which lowers long-term rates. That's something, of course, the Federal Reserve last time around took some time to implement, but now is implementing immediately. So some of these things hopefully will start to have uh, an effect sooner rather than later. In addition, while this is certainly, you know, a different kind of crisis than we faced in this financial crisis, one of the things that will be interesting to look at is how countries with things like um, paid sick leave for employees from low-wage earners all the way up. Um, so if you have comprehensive sick leave, paid sick leave policies, what that does to kind of flatten the curve, I think that's yet to be seen. But, you know, I think there is a lot of discussion that that might, in fact, be effective. 
What worries you most about the economic challenges we're facing, and what gives you hope when you look at the current situation? A couple of things that stand out in terms of being especially hopeful are, number one, that policymakers have responded in a very significant way in a very short period of time. The response has come much faster than it did during the Great Recession. So that's great news. Secondly, as we mentioned earlier, coming into the crisis, credit unions were in good shape financially. Their sort of financial bumpers were pretty significant. Capital levels were near all-time highs. Asset quality was near cyclical highs. Delinquency rates, I believe, were at cyclical lows. And earnings were above 90 basis points. But from a financial perspective, we were, as an industry, in pretty good shape and um, in better shape than we had been over the course of the last 10 or 15 years. And then finally, the consumer sector, even though it's stressed and it has these challenges that we talked about before, reflected balance sheets that were pretty strong overall. The exposure to debt was quite low as a percentage of take-home pay, about 90% of take-home pay, according to the Federal Reserve, way down from 125%, which was the level prior to the beginning of the housing crisis. And so those debt levels were down, debt payment burdens were near all-time lows, and uh, housing values are quite high. Stock markets come down a lot, but you know, in the broad scheme of things, equity values still are relatively high. So in general, the housing sector is, in, as we enter, in pretty good shape. So those are, I think, all hopeful things. What things stand out to you as your biggest concerns about all this? One of the biggest concerns that I have is that we've, from a policy perspective, have already thrown a lot at this crisis. But the problem is that uh, a lot of the the levers that we can pull are levers that aren't going to really do much in the current situation. So dropping interest rates to zero, we'll get a bunch of mortgage refinancings that'll free up some cash flow. We've experienced that in the past, and, and that's helped to free up cash flow. But it's not like lowering rates to zero in any way, shape, or form is going to create a big amount of demand for loans and or additional significant consumer spending, especially on big-ticket items. So in a lot of respects, those policy tools that we have that uh, have worked in previous downturns simply won't work in this downturn. And the other thing, really big thing that concerns me is, this isn't part of our baseline forecast, but if our baseline forecast is off, you could certainly come up with a scenario, a situation where prices begin to fall and they sort of enter into a a negative feedback loop where, generally speaking, price declines cause consumers to just sit on the sidelines and withhold purchases and withhold expenditures on big-ticket items and watching prices decline and basically contributing to the decline itself. And so that sort of a situation is especially dangerous because we really don't have policy tools to get out of a negative feedback loop like that. The other thing I, I would mention is clearly we don't know how long this is going to last and a lockdown of two or three months is certainly much different than protracted periods of quarantine or social distancing and the ramifications that that would have for the economy. If you read the reports, if you look at places like Hong Kong, they were very successful in stopping the spread of coronavirus 
at the onset, but now all of a sudden has seen a doubling in the number of cases. There are folks talking about the potential for the coronavirus to sort of dissipate over the warmer summer months, but then come back in the fall. So all of those scenarios certainly could be much more devastating for the economy. The other thing we've reflected on a bit as well that I think is interesting to note is to what extent this will accelerate some of the longer-term trends that we were sort of already seeing in the economy. For example, the move to online shopping and the closing of retail stores or malls, or even the closing of restaurants and moving more towards ordering food online or through different apps. So all of those moves as well, maybe the move more towards remote work, I think this process will also accelerate that whole trend as people get more used to staying at home, having meetings through Zoom, ordering food, things of that nature. So it could very well be that many of the small stores or malls or restaurants, if they end up having to close during this crisis, they may in fact uh, never reopen. So in a recent article, Mike, you mentioned um, a message from a credit union CEO at the start of the Great Recession. Can you tell us about the message that he, he sent to you when, as, a, as a board member? So, yeah, I don't have the quote right in front of me, but uh, the general gist was that credit unions really are different, and that difference can be significant and can really transform lives, especially in periods where there's big uh, disconnects uh, from an economic perspective. And uh, essentially, the idea is that, of course, for-profit banks exist for the sole purpose of enhancing shareholder value. And in the current situation, enhancing shareholder value basically pushes those institutions into various behaviors that typically don't result in good outcomes for consumers. Credit unions, on the other hand, because we're focused on maximizing not shareholder value, but maximizing member service, are more likely to approach the situation in a way that is beneficial to consumers. And by that, I mean staying engaged and continuing to help people, even though, from a financial perspective, it might cause your income to go down a bit and might cause your capital to go down a bit. So that was the general message. It's hard to believe it was only four short weeks ago we were at the GAC. And I was um, fortunate enough at the GAC to attend the uh, CUNA board dinner and while we were there, Jim Nussel, our CEO, did a little bit of a presentation for uh, Brent Martinez, who was terming off the CUNA board and uh, retiring from the CUNA board. And I felt like Jim's message was especially important. Uh, he, he talked about how Brent's credit union had spent quite a bit of time helping people during the wildfire catastrophes in California. And he kicked off his remarks with a... Uh, quote from Martin Luther King Jr. And the quote was, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? It's such a powerful quote. And I, when Jim said that, it, it just, it drove home the fact that that's what credit unions are all about, trying to figure out what they can do to help others. And they do it on an ongoing basis, even in tough times. I spent a lot of time on the road talking to credit unions in strategic planning sessions, and it's very clear the most successful institutions, the most successful credit unions have a laser focus on mission. They have a long-term strategy that changes with conditions, 
and they really focus on communication, not only to members, but to their board as well, and they focus on cooperation. Those seem to be the things that um, sort of came out in that uh, communication that I that I had at the board level during the Great Recession, and um, it's not always easy to do that, but when we remind ourselves of that, it can be pretty powerful and have really significant effects in the marketplace. Hey, after all, look at what happened in the wake of the Great Recession. We recorded four or five consecutive years with membership growth above 4%, added 4 million memberships every year for four or five consecutive years. It's astounding, growing memberships at roughly five or six times the rate of U.S. population growth. So, I mean, most credit unions don't need to be told that, but having other people say things like that, I think is really helpful, especially from the standpoint of board members and the way board members tend to view crises. They're obviously focused on maintaining the financial viability of, of the institution, and I think there's probably an inclination a little bit to uh, to overreact to crisis and to tighten up a little bit, whereas, again, the most successful, I think, credit unions over time have really reflected this ability and willingness to be more flexible and let capital do its work. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, you know, from a board perspective, I serve on the board and of a credit union. There's a couple other things that I think are really important. One, we are really good at communication and communicating with members. And so, for example, while we may be closing our lobbies to protect the health and well-being of our employees and members both, we don't lead with that. We lead with, hey, we're ready, willing, and able to help you. And that sort of upfront communication is not only important with members, but just a reminder, it's also really important with boards. Boards, generally speaking, in this situation, I think will have an inclination to step back, step out of the way in some cases, and let management do what it needs to do in order to adequately respond and to maintain as much flexibility as possible. But as management, I think you want to be really careful that you use that same basic approach to open communication that you would with members. So you may not be hearing from board members in between meetings. I think it's really important to continue to communicate with your board, maybe even hold like a weekly half-hour meeting with your board just to give them a, you know, a couple of quick hits on here's what's happening on the ground, here's what we're seeing, here are the big concerns that we have, so that they're in the loop and they know what's going on. It's not only important from a board perspective so that they know what's going on, but it's also super important from the standpoint of documenting those conversations and maybe adding them to uh, your board packet or some other way of memorializing the conversation. Because, as you know, Regulators right now are saying, oh, you, you can engage in all of these consumer-friendly behaviors, and they're saying that now. But on more than one occasion in the past, I've experienced situations where the regulators said, oh, you know, this sort of behavior is going to be uh, viewed favorably, and it ends up, from an exam perspective, not being viewed favorably. So that's a really big deal to be able to say, look, the changes we've seen in income, the changes we've seen in net worth... Those are changes that we discussed with our board on an ongoing basis, not just monthly, but on an ongoing basis. We kept them in the loop, and we had buy-in at that level. That's super important, I think. And then just one other thing. I've had a lot of conversations with credit unions in the last couple of weeks about 
what's this going to mean from a financial perspective, and the answers are all over the board. One thing that almost all credit unions do in their asset liability management is they run these models and they shock the balance sheet. And the deal is when they do that, when they do the scenario analysis in the ALM process, almost always they're shocking with maybe 100, 200, 300 basis point interest rate uh, increases, and then maybe in this environment, bringing rates all the way down to zero. So the last time ALM committees looked at this, probably they had in the severe negative situation, rates going down 200 basis points or so, something like that. The important thing to remember is the results of those modeling activities are based on, almost always, assumptions of a static balance sheet. In other words, the balances in your assets and your liabilities don't change when the shock occurs. So probably what would be a good idea, because I'm guessing board members are concerned about this, probably would be a good idea to uh, take that uh, ALM modeling that you've done in the past and actually do it on a dynamic balance sheet. So, you know, if CUNA economists are right, or if internally our CFO is right, and we do get a lot of uh, new deposits, but we can't make loans, and rates go down to zero, as they are at the moment, what effect will that have? So we already have a bunch of data, but not all of it is really good data in terms of telling us the path forward. And the faster that we can process some of the changes and keep people sort of in tune with what the current thinking is on, on where financials are going, I think that's probably the better approach. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play.